The Energy Gang is sponsored by Renasola, a top manufacturer and supplier of clean energy equipment, including solar modules, inverters, energy storage, and efficient lighting. With 40 worldwide subsidiaries, the company offers one-stop shopping for all your equipment needs, with next-day delivery. You can see the entire list of Renasola's offerings available coast-to-coast at renasola.us. For the week of June 29th, 2015, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Hello and welcome. I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we have a recorded show from our Grid Edge Live conference held last week in San Diego. For those of you at the event, good to see you. We uh, interacted with many of our listeners there. For those who were not, you missed out. We did, of course, plan to bring you our live Energy Gang session, which we're going to now present in full. Um, I do apologize in advance for the mic quality. They sounded pretty good in the venue. They sounded really good in the venue, but they weren't optimal for recording, so you get that live kind of hollow sound. But it was a very insightful conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. If you want to watch all the sessions from the event, we've got them on our events page. We will provide a link back in our show notes at greentechmedia.com slash podcast. Enjoy the conversation. We, we love doing this show uh, live. It's a lot of fun for us. And I'll turn to two people that I love very dearly who are with me every step of the way each week talking about the latest in climate, energy, environment, and clean tech. Uh, Catherine Hamilton is a co-host, uh, co-founder, and a partner with 38 North Solutions based in Washington, D.C. It's a public policy firm focused on pushing the agenda forward for clean energy issues. Uh, she has a long history in the utility sector, in finance, and in policy, so she brings a unique perspective to the energy gang and, and to these topics. And you know, she, she works tirelessly on these issues in Washington where the, the discussion around clean energy isn't always as intelligent as conferences like this. Um, how are you? Doing Good great. to see you. Thank you. Glad to get out of what the What news going degrees. on in D.C.? Yeah, 98 degrees, but Congress is still trying to do something. And could I tell you about a bill? Yeah, that please do. Yeah. So the Master Limited Partnership Parity Act, I have to give it a shout out because Senator Coons has been working diligently on this bill forever and basically... This is, I think, the third go-round of him introducing this, very bipartisan and bicameral. So on the House and Senate side, they've introduced a bill um, with eight co-sponsors on each side, four, I mean, four Republicans, four Democrats in the House and the Senate. Um, and Master Limited Partnerships, basically, it's a tax structure, a business structure that allows you to be taxed as a partnership, um, but the ownership interests are traded as stock would be traded. So this is um, very effective for companies, especially that don't have yield codes. Yield codes have, in essence, taken over um, the space that an MLP would occupy, but at some point the yield codes will stop yielding, and MLP parity is going to be really important. So this bill would open it up. Right now it's only for oil and gas and other fossil interests. Um, this bill would open it up to renewables, efficiency, large efficiency projects, energy storage, biofuels, so it's pretty exciting. Yeah. This I mean, is What's, yeah. yeah, I mean, this is it really though? That's yes, the no, like, it actually, it is something I don't know. that could We've get done. We've heard that for a lot of issues. I'm just hoping. I do think they're going to get an energy bill done. I don't know what's going to be in it, um, and there's going to be some kind of tax title. And I hope this is one of those ones that slips All in. All right, we'll see. We'll see. 
Our other co-host is Jigger Shah. He is the president of Generate Capital, the well-known as the co-founder of Sun Edison. Uh, he comes to us usually from either New York or San Francisco. We don't know which one. We just <laughs> dial him up. Uh, sometimes he comes to us from a Starbucks even. Uh, last week he was with us from a public library in New York. Um, I, he was going to fly in this morning. I was worried that he wasn't going to make it, and we would be Skyping him in from like an Uber on the way from the airport, but we're glad to have him in person. <laughs> How's it going? It's going well. It's going well. We just have to figure out how to do this from United Wi-Fi. <laughs> uh, and each week we bring on a new guest to talk uh, and give us some, uh, some info on their area of expertise. And this week we are very pleased to welcome Tom Bialik, who is the chief engineer at San Diego Gas and Electric. Uh, he didn't have to travel too far to be here. We appreciate you, well, you joining you. us. Thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm happy to sort of sub in for the, you know, to do this. Uh, it's really quite an interesting crowd, really interesting event. Um, lots of very informative panel discussions and happy to share what we're doing at SCG. Great. Yeah, you've got a lot of exciting projects going on, and that's what we're going to talk about in the first segment. So uh, we will discuss how SDG&E sees the smart grid evolving. Um, they've got a really interesting microgrid project that has some new uh, performance metrics. They're integrating a distributed resource management system. Uh, they're doing interesting stuff with electric vehicles, and we'll try to parse all of that out and figure out where they are with that. Uh, then we're going to look at how the utility customer relationship is changing. And a new survey from Accenture shows that digitally con connected consumers, those that are talking with their utility, receiving messages from their utility through digital channels are far more likely to trust their utility to make energy decisions and, or help them make energy decisions. So we'll unpack that a little bit and figure out where the utilities um, can capture that value. And in our third segment, we're going to talk about how to balance renewables, storage, and fossil fuels um, within California's local capacity requirement and maybe talk about some of the other uh, interesting things going on underway in a regulatory sense in this state. There's just so much to keep track of, and I do my best over on the East Coast to, to keep track of what's going on here in California. So a lot to unpack there as well. And Tom, I figure we start off with a more personal question. You've, you've been in the utility sector since, I think, 1982? Sir? Since the um, early 80s? So I work back and forth between utilities and manufacturers. Okay. Um, so SDG is the sixth place I worked at and traveled, moved a few times, and... Uh, so yeah, I've sort of seen both sides of this spectrum um, from a manufacturer perspective where it's very different, very focused on delivering a product to sort of the utility space where, um, you know, you talked a little bit about all the regulations and all the policies. Uh, very heavily, your work is very heavily influenced by those policies and by the regulations and the bills that pass in Sacramento in our case or in D.C. And... How do we now sit there from a sort of engineering perspective, create a system that actually will work and function? Yeah, well, how are things, what, what, what kind of decisions are you making today that you wouldn't have been making in the, the 80s? I mean, for those who are not steeped in utility culture, like how dramatically different is your job than what it would have been in, in you know, a couple decades ago? So if I was to look at what we're doing today, uh, if you look at the historical planning process, it was based upon the one hour of the year, that was the highest load, and that drove every single capital project. Um, you look at all the sort of the reliability metrics, uh, the requirement was reliable service at reasonable cost. Um, now you look at where we are, where we're integrating significant amount of renewables. We've got the policy goals with regards to RPS, where we're already at 33%. Um, 
by, set, by uh, energy and what our customers are doing. It's a very, very different world. So the customers are really changing how we view the world and how we're actually responding to providing services to them. And so it's no longer a very simple, straightforward, I do this, I do that, I, you know, on a certain timeline. You're very, seeing very uh, significant changes in the actual planning and operations of the utility and the leveraging of basically the IT and communication systems that have become prevalent as part of the telecommunication industry, which are now really bleeding into the utility world. Yeah. So very, very different environment. Okay, so a lot of projects that I want to talk about. The first is your distributed energy resource management system that you are currently integrating uh, to enable two-way power flows to manage high penetrations of PV and storage and potentially electric vehicles. Um, how does that differ? Where are you in implementing that? And like, how does that differ from a traditional distribution sure. management system? So the traditional distribution management system is really a system where we're controlling the switches and... Um, capacitors primarily and low tap changers via SCADA. Um, and for us, that's a private licensed um, communication network. It's a sort of a longer um, time frame sort of solution. So actions aren't occurring very quickly, 20 seconds, 30 seconds a minute. Um, DERMS is really about looking at what's out there. What are, what are our customers putting out there? What systems are we putting out there? whether it be storage, whether it be uh, PV, whether it be smart inverters, whether it be um, dynamic VAR devices, et cetera, whatever customers are putting out there, and how can we look at controlling those and optimizing those and how they would inter interact with the grid while we try to provide reliable service to our customers. So a very different tool. It's a, we view it as a peer to the DMS. The DMS is the, the tool. This is layered on top of the DMS? No, it's a peer. Okay. So it's a peer-to-peer -peer relationship okay. with the DMS, but it is a distributed, federated, hierarchical structure. So I think for those of you that were here yesterday, you heard a lot about how um, the communication pieces, the latency pieces. So if you want real-time control, and when we talk about real-time control, we're talking, let's say, protection-level control or cycle-level control, you can't do that from a centralized location. So you have an autonomous layer that takes care of those things, and you build on top of that autonomous layer with some sort of overarching control architecture. And then you just sort of keep building that architecture up. And so at the high level, the DERMS device will be sitting there and actually looking at what's going on outside the grid, ultimately being able to say, you know, I see an opportunity over here where we could actually discharge some energy storage, as an example. And by discharging the energy storage, we actually get to a point where it would be lower losses or whatever we wanted to optimize around. Um, can I do that? And then it will ask for permission from the distribution operations folks. And then if the distribution operations folks say yes, it may sit, then request that the, the actual distribution management system effectuate some change in status. And so a lot of very sort of interesting things. Um, we're sort of down the, the implementation of several of the first phases, and we're getting to the integration phases because, as you might imagine, the last thing our operators really want to see is another computer screen and another device sitting out there that they have to go look at. And so the integration of that system into our existing DMS, providing them a single layer of visibility, becomes really important. So, Tom, um, you and I 
uh, first knew each other when I was running the Gridwise Alliance, and at that time we were thinking a lot about architecture and about standards. And so it's changed a lot over time. How have you, have the standards in architecture caught up with what you need to do and with the technologies that you're putting out there now? Well, I think we've come to some realization um, what that architecture would look like. Um, where are the standards? Um, standards around some of these controllers are being developed as we speak. Um, you know, our position on standards has been we'll apply them when they're available, applicable, and cost-effective for our customers. And in many cases, they're not at this point in time. So what we are doing is do a lot of, as you might guess, the more seamless you want this to look, um, the more integration you need, and with more integration becomes more, you know, adapters and because we don't have that standardized open architecture or standards for interfaces. So the first implementation is at the Borrego Springs microgrid, is that correct? Correct. Uh, what kind of assets do you have there? How big is that town? Is it 1,200 people? Um, so the, the actual customers, there's 2,800 customers. 2,800 customers. I'm a mix, primarily residential. Um, for those one who, transmission line going one there. One single radial transmission line. Um, it goes through roughly 30 miles, and it changes in elevation about 5,000 feet. So, and you've uh, built that microgrid in, uh, in using a 45 megawatt system developed by NRG PV systems? So, um, no. So when okay. we originally started that, they didn't quite get there. Um, what happened? Well, the reason is that the transmission line is actually constrained. It's thermally constrained out of, out of Borrego Springs. So the actual NRG plant is 26 megawatts. Um, the first version of it, we use diesel generators and energy storage. And so we have currently 1.5 megawatts for three hours of lithium-ion solutions out there. We've got two 1.8 megawatt diesel generators. Where we've gone is the original version, we islanded a single circuit. But increasingly what we are seeing it, with regards to outages is that we had our senior management say, well, we want you to island the entire community. And so we did a lot of manual work to make that happen. Having said that, we then initiated an effort to automate a lot of the switching that would occur um, so it wouldn't take a troubleshooter to go out there, as well as taking a look at how could we incorporate that 26 megawatt array. And so the press release that was, came out talked about, well, this was the first sort of demonstration of the actual implementation of the 26 megawatt array. Um, it was a much more manual process at the time, um, but interestingly, what you, we found was on the one circuit that we had originally designed, the transfer from grid parallel to island mode occurred seamlessly for all three circuits. Um, but when we went back, the one circuit that we had previously worked on was seamless. The other two saw 10-minute outages, but during the course of the planned outage, we put in the facilities to actually now, in the next event, seamlessly go back on the transmission level. So uh, the goal, ultimately, of the microgrid will be it's a renewable-based, become a renewable-based microgrid um, and use the 26 megawatt array plus energy storage to basically ride through the night and drop to critical loads. What, what does this add up to you? Does this add up to anything to you, Jigger? Like, is this, I mean, this is pretty yeah. unique for a lot it's, of utilities. I mean, look, I'm an engineer, and from an engineering point of view, it's fascinating, but I don't hear any money. I mean, I just, I look at this and I think, you're going to help 2,800 customers in the middle of nowhere basically get some stuff. That's pretty cool. Is anyone going to get a billion-dollar contract out of this? Probably not. 
And um, so as a venture capitalist, you sort of sit around and go like, there's all these companies who've basically been part of the Gridwise Alliance and now are like part of this conference. And they've been waiting, right, six, seven, eight years for their big break. And I'm trying to figure out when it's going to come, right? Is it going to continue to be 50,000 hour contracts for this and 200,000 hour contracts for that? Or are they ever going to get their, you know, like fulfill their promise, right? Fulfill their higher ideals. Well, what I would say to that is that we, we've seen areas where, uh, particularly in developing countries, where it makes a lot of sense. And financially, if you look at what's going on, uh, for us to construct a transmission line, you know, significant dollars, significant capital investment. Um, and that's true in a, of any other place in the world. Therefore, you know, you see a lot of developing countries where, just like the telecom industry, they're bypassing the wires. They're putting in solar, they're putting in a battery to provide electricity to help them develop. And in those areas, and I know some companies that are working in those areas, where they are actually believe that they don't have a viable business model. But you had, I mean, and I'm not saying this in a negative way, I just think this is something that was real and in front of you mm -hmm. in sort of 2009, 2010, right? You guys had the choice of building, you know, the Sunrise Power Link, which was, you know, several billion dollars, and rate basing it over 40 years or actually integrating all of these technologies and you know, figuring out how to do without that power line and meeting all the needs through distributed generation and microgrids and all sorts of advanced technologies within your territory. And you, know, you guys chose to build the power line. And so I'm just trying to figure out like, you know, I'm just trying to figure out whether any of these companies have a shot, right? Like, I mean, should they all be working in Mexico and India and not come here and not try? Or like, do they actually have a shot at like winning the next $500 million contract instead of building the $2 billion <coughs> transmission line. Sure. Well, I would say that what we're seeing is that at some point, given the reduction in costs, technology, and the advancements in, in communications and IT, there will be a point where it will be more cost-effective to build these other solutions, non-traditional solutions, than it will be to build a power line. And that point will come someday. Yeah, I talked to some folks at SNC Electric that I know you've worked with before, mm -hmm. and they were talking about islanding um, for 25 hours with just PV and a battery, and and really the whole microgrid concept getting you to much better utility reliability metrics, better asset utilization, and then so to Jigger's point, how do you then turn that into you know compensation for for you and for others, for others that are that are working on those technologies? Well, I mean, compensation always, always becomes an issue. Um, there's been a lot of proceedings at the Commission around distributed energy resources for a long time. Uh, we, there is a mechanism in place today that if a DR solution is more cost-effective for um, our customers, that we should procure that. It's in public statute. And therefore, we would be looking at sharing the cost savings that would be associated with doing that. Um, speaking of rate basing, uh, you have proposed a program to roll out thousands of EV chargers at multifamily housing units. Um, have, first of all, explain that program and have you seen any pushback associated with developing, uh, owning, maintaining, and rate basing EV infrastructure? Uh, certainly there, there's been some, um, I think a lot of people are concerned about uh, utilities owning that infrastructure, whether or not they can do it in a cost-effective manner, and similar to what we see in, in PV deployment. 
Well, uh, if you look at our VGI filing, we were looking at trying to do a couple of different things. Uh, one of which was to uh, look at sort of circuit differentiated level pricing. So recognizing that electric vehicles create a large significant load for um, the utility. And so that was certainly one element, that's certainly an element of VGI. Uh, we also, in this part of that, looked at it and said, well, are there, where does it make sense for the utility to participate? And uh, if you look at where we're, the areas we're targeting, they're really things like workplace charging, uh, where uh, it makes a lot of sense to take advantage of the vehicles that are there, um, help promote the adoption of electric vehicles um, because to help the state with its greenhouse gas reduction goal. And um, so, yes, I think that there's an opportunity on both sides. Um, clearly, there are others who are were opposed mm -hmm. to SDG&E participating in it. Um, we ha do have a settlement agreement um, with majority of parties. Um, I think everybody does recognize that there is a role for the utility to play in this. So, I mean, you know, the, the question I would have, though, more broadly on electric vehicles is more around um, all of the benefits that come from it and how people get compensated for it, right? So when you think about electric vehicle charging, for instance, um, if I charge my electric vehicle at work, can my, can my company actually use my um, charging load as demand response on an integrated basis with my, my facility so, and potentially even draw power out of my battery to be able to like, actually meet loads? Because you're seeing a similar function being provided by CODA or Green Charge Networks mm -hmm. or stem through stationary battery sources, so why not do it through mobile battery sources? And, you know, would they get compensated for that? Um, and then separately you've got um, other, you know, you have other um, things that you can do. One of the big challenges, you know, with the utility now is that there are periods of time when you're actually, um, you have a lot of excess generation, um, whether it's because of renewables or because of um, coal plants that can't be um, turned down very quickly or or whatnot, and so when you have that, is there a value to electric vehicles only staying at 75% charge and you know, being able to be turned on um, at the time at which um, you need excess load, right, to, to get rid of that? I'm just trying to figure out how this full integration actually gets created, and is it, is it easier to get fully integrated because you guys are going to own some of this charging infrastructure, so you, know, you have sort of a, an ability to do that? Well, I think longer term, it's going to be a combination of both. Um, certainly, with utility ownership comes, you know, certainly some uh, more level of control, more being the utility. Uh, if you look at some of the, certainly some of the ideas around where the future goes, uh, to your point, uh, could you envision how a company decides to put in that charging and use the vehicles, assuming the cu customers are willing to participate, sure. yeah. um, in doing demand response and, you know, to your point, the STEM model um, is an example of how energy storage has gone in to help people reduce their bills. And so can you envision where somebody might want to do something like that? The answer is sure you can. Um, does it exist today? Um, no. But that doesn't mean that it won't exist some point down the road. Well, the reason, I, the reason I ask the question that way is, though, because I think, I mean, I, I really do think that there is an underlying tension here around companies who are getting venture capital. Um, it is not it is not within the remit of venture capitalists to give someone money to potentially make money in 20 years, right? And so, so these companies are being asked 
Um, you know, STEM's a great example. I think they've announced three big utilities who've invested in them recently. And, um, and if, if it, I'm, I'm, trying, I'm just trying to figure out how everyone plays nice, right? Because if these guys have to hit revenue targets every year to be able to make their investors happy, um, then they're by definition going to be disruptive unless there's a pathway by which they can deploy this in concert with the utility and make money. Otherwise, they're going to say, I'm going to go around the utility and I'm going to do whatever I can to do things, you know, to like make money this quarter. And their sales guys have bonuses, bonus plans and, you know, engineers are doing this and that. And, and I, I just, I'm trying to figure out how we actually remove some of the tension of that relationship and maybe it's not possible. Hmm. Well, let's, let's move on to the second topic actually. And, um, and talk about this new survey from Accenture from 11,000 customers around the world. Uh, 41% of respondents who have interacted with their utilities through digital channels have said that they trust the utility to help optimize consumption and make energy management decisions. And only 31% of the non-digital uh, customers said that they trusted their electricity provider. So you have a pretty big gap there. Um, interesting that only 41% said that they um, would trust the utility. But a big gap between the two. Um, so what does this tell us about you know, the way the utilities can strengthen their, their relationships with their customers? Um, was any, Catherine or Jigger, were any of you surprised by those, those numbers? Anything interesting um, in that survey? That no, well, but when you dug down and you looked at um, who was more trusted, the utilities had at like 36% when they asked the question generally. You, you got to a more specific question. Yeah, yeah. But more... Trustworthy were considered consumer associations, academia at like 48%, and enviros at 46%. So my question was, hmm, how, how do you tap into get that much? <laughs> <laughs> well, also, like, how do you guys tap into them? If they're the trustworthy folks, how do you partner with consumers, consumer yeah. advocates, enviros, and academia to enhance the trust for the utility? Yeah. That was yeah. kind of the question I had. Yeah. Well, I th where we've gone is we, we have invested a lot of time and effort trying to, you know, the green button up downloads, uh, getting data out to customers to allow them to try to make more informed decisions, allowing them to, the marketplace. Are they downloading that data? Um, there's a number, you know, what the numbers are, you know, I'd like to tell you that they're They're not great. Phenomenal. <laughs> the people who listen to the podcast. Yeah, yeah there that's right. We go. <laughs> they, don't, they don't have their own server farm built for that purpose. <laughs> but, you know, it, Part of the challenge gets to be uh, what are the choices the customers make? Um, and what we're seeing is that the customers are making choices based upon uh, what is the impact of my bill? What can I do to minimize my bill? Um, we're providing them with data, we're providing them information how they can manage their bill. Uh, we're certainly seeking out what kind of alternative channels we can, I think to, to Catherine's point, what alternative channels we can actually engage um, to become a the trusted energy advisor for the utility or for the, for our customers. Yeah. I, I think that the, the the reason the question is I think you know difficult to answer in my opinion is because it's not like people actually have real choice. It's one thing if they actually were being offered this service from all nine parties and then they were actually choosing between academia or the utility or whatever. The only choice they really have right now is the private sector company, right? I mean, and so those are the ones who are actively going directly to customers and saying, like, we've raised $20 million of venture capital, and we actually have to get our thing out the door, right? Whether it's Tendril or some of these other, other players, and then Nest, right, who's gone directly to market. 
Um, and some of them have actually said, well, let's partner with the utility and let's send it through. And then OPower have clearly done that and decided to bring in some smart thermostats and other things. But I, I, I do think that one of the challenges here is trying to figure out um, why customers don't really have choice, right? Because, I mean, even in the regulatory framework, I mean, to take a, a you know, high-profile example, when Baltimore Gas and Electric, which is part of Constellation, um, got rejected by the Public Service Commission on smart grid infrastructure, right? They eventually got approved for that smart grid infrastructure because they said, we are promising that our customers who get smart grid will use the tools and save 7 to 12% of their energy. And now that we're sort of seven years later, they're not doing any such thing, right? Now they're doing pilots with O-Power, and they're doing this, and then days that are hot and whatever else, they're getting like little text messages that say that uh, you should turn on your air conditioner. But, but the, the customer, you know, I mean, and they had an economic incentive by the Public Service Commission that said that if you don't reach these metrics, which you would do through all these technologies, um, you will get penalized. It still didn't happen, right? And so part of, part of my concern, you know, in this area is, is as someone who, you know, actively invests in the space, I just think that, like, I'm trying to figure out whether we're ever going to have a cell phone moment, right? When you look at what Verizon did, Verizon was a completely regulated company, right? And they, they basically bet the farm on their company on, on the unregulated side of their business on cell phones. They started saying, we're going to put billions of dollars a year into that. And now they're 90% unregulated, right? Only 10% regulated. And, you know, you, you would have thought that solar was the technology that, every, that a utility would get behind and say, my unregulated subsidiary is going to become larger than my regulated subsidiary. But it hasn't worked out that way. So now is it, is it grid edge? Is it, is it, like, is it information for the customer? Is it electric vehicles? Like, what is it that's going to cause, you know, risk-averse entity to say, we are going to bet the farm on the unregulated side of our business. I just don't know yet. Well, I think it's um, somewhat consistent with what Steve McBee was talking about yesterday from NRG. You know, we've had him on the podcast, and he's talked about how they're really trying to focus on, on the retail side, on personalized power, on giving those choices to consumers, and on trying to figure out how to give them what they want. And he's um, fully unregulated. He's fully unregulated, Exactly. Yeah. So how do you grapple with that as a regulated utility? And do you think that NRG's vision for, say, personalized power is consistent with the way you see choice uh, in you know, the regulated utility environment? Well, there are challenges associated with being a regulated utility. Um, a good example would be where can, or where does our commission allow us to play? Um, you know, we don't they don't really like us playing behind the mirror. Um, that's you know pretty typical. Um, but I would say that if we look historically at what we have seen with regards to some of the AMI deployments, um, some of the AMI pilots, uh, that enabling technology does help customers. We've seen that as far as demand response is concerned. Um, it makes it easier for them, and certainly you know we've got. Um, you know, some peak time rebate programs that are with technology, you get an additional um, compensation for reducing your for use. Now, at the end of the day, a lot of the stuff comes back to rates. But mm -hmm. again, that's a really long, really long, arduous discussion. Yeah, like have you guys gotten beyond piloting anything on the home energy management front? I mean, utilities have piloted and piloted and piloted this stuff for years, and they're really you know, only a handful of like solid commercial deployments. And I'd just love to know... 
I mean, you've worked with a lot of different vendors. Mm-hmm. Where are you today with some of the consumer empowerment, home energy management stuff? So we do offer various devices um, that you can um, procure and purchase and uh, actually um, talk to your own meter, um, get five-second consumption data so that you can make much more informed decisions about what you may or may not want to do. Now, that's something that we as a utility don't have access to. From a, our metering system gives us basically, for residential customers, one-hour consumption data. Um, we have offered loan programs with regards to smart thermostats. Um, so we are looking at trying to you know, empower customers to make some choices um, with regards to technology and what those technologies will be. Um, yeah. And are they taking you up on it? I mean, I just remember a few years, ComEd in Illinois sent all, sent a bunch of customers iPads, mm-hmm. and the customers were so freaked out that they sent them back. Like, why do I want Wait, really? you on my bedside <laughs> table on my iPad? That's strange and creepy. <laughs> and uh, and so, and, but I think it's come some ways since then, and I'm just curious, like, what kinds of customers are taking you up on some of these, if they are? Well, I think the customers who are, are interested in tech, I mean, it's like everything else. I mean, you, there's a lot of really adopters, right? Yeah. Really adopters of technology who really like the stuff. And the question is, um, you know, would a role for utility be a you know a wide scale rollout of enabling technology? Possibly. Um, is that something we're doing now? I really don't know. Uh, it's not my sort of area of expertise. Um, but you can envision where. You know, as part of what the utility does, providing reliable service to customers, giving them information is part of that. And however we do that um, becomes really important. I think the, I mean, the broader context of this, I think, matters, right? I mean, I think the reason we care about the question around digital devices and some of these other pieces is what, you know, New York is doing in Rev, right? It's basically that, that we now foresee, according to McKinsey, you know, 5% rate increases for as far as the eye can see. Right, everything we have is old, and if we replace the old stuff with the same equivalent old, st- uh, you know, new stuff, right? New transmission lines or distribution lines or substations or new gas plants or whatever it is, it's a five percent rate increase for as far as the eye can see, which is a lot. Five percent compounded gets you to like thirty, forty cents per kilowatt hour for power, right? And so to avoid that, we have to integrate smart devices, smart data. We've got to figure out how to actually physically you know, bend the load curve, right? So when we, people talk about the duck curve and all those things, it's actually fairly straightforward to figure out how to solve that problem. I mean, that's why Southern California Edison put out the RFPs and, and gave contracts to Evapracool and Ice Energy and some of these other people, not necessarily just battery storage it's companies. Kind of a huge contract. But, yeah, but switching, like, you know, air conditioning loads away from sort of the peak times to becoming more of a flexible load where you can actually create ice or chilled water or whatever it is whenever you want, yeah. right? And, um, and so then you can actually manufacture um, load during the trough of the duck curve, right? And so, so I, you know, from, from an investment point of view, I think the reason why these companies are so important, all of the companies that are ex- exhibiting here, et cetera, is that there are regulators out there that believe that those solutions are one-tenth the cost of actually rebuilding stuff exactly like we did it in the 70s and the 80s, right? And so that's why this customer adoption thing matters so much. Because if we don't actually see that, then the alternative is we're going to have to overpay for infrastructure 
Um, and then if 10 years from now, the customers suddenly turn on and say, okay, we really want this stuff, well, damn, we already paid for this infrastructure. So now we're double paying for this deployment and for the infrastructure we already built, right? Which, you know, just drives regulators up the wall. <laughs> so let me give you another example of, you know, I think maybe to follow up on what Jigger said. If you look at the whole idea around um, you know, smart inverters and what California has done around the inverters, putting technology into the inverter as opposed to um, just continuing to allow um, you know, single unity power factor production of energy. Um, it does open doors for you know, what else can be done. Um, yeah, voltage, yeah. frequency. Why don't you just rate base inverters? That's what I always never understood. It's like, like the, let the solar cities and everybody else in the world actually put in solar panels, but you guys actually just rate base the inverters, and then you can actually put specs on them and say, we want this ability, and with Enphase, for instance, which is what they're do, in doing in Hawaii, they can actually use a Wi-Fi signal and update the software and give you all the extra functionality on an every six-month basis. So you don't actually have to send text into the field and change stuff, but you now have this ability to do all the things at the circuit level that you want to do based on these ridiculously complex pieces of equipment called the inverter. But why would the solar cities of the world want to go along with that? Because it's a great marriage, right? The, the, biggest, the biggest challenge that we're having with net metering right now, right, is this concept around loss of revenue, right? If, if suddenly, like on a residential solar system, inverters are, let's say, 50 cents a watt, which is, you know, one-sixth of the cost of the system, if the utilities now have the ability to rate base one-sixth of the cost of the solar system, they can actually say that we're now getting paid on a regulated basis all this money for the next 20 years on that, on that investment we made. And oh, by the way, all of the things that they're learning out of the Germs Project and the Borrego Springs Project and all the other things, they now can actually use and implement into the software of the inverter. I mean, the, the, the full functionality of the inverter was proven in the 80s. So this is not like a new concept, right? We basically killed all that advanced functionality in the 80s through IEEE, you know, 1547. And then, because it was just easier to kill it all. And then sometime around 2007, we brought it back. And now we've got, you know, IEEE, what, 1547-3, which is now allowing all of those advanced functionalities to come back. And that's what, you know, the companies like uh, what PSE&G did with putting solar on telephone poles and all that stuff, right? All of that frequency, voltage, all the other support services um, that an inverter can provide, you know, is coming back yeah, now. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, so, you, of course, you have the Advanced Inverter Working Group here in California, and that's part of, I think, the bigger policy discussion I want to have about California. Uh, we only have, like, eight minutes left, um, but I do want to start that conversation by going back to the SCE storage procurement that you talked about. And this is part of the, the local capacity requirement that utilities have. Um, it was, you know, they, they had a plan for, they had a requirement for 50 megawatts. They ended up procuring 250 megawatts based on cost and performance and need on the grid. And, and Catherine, I mean, you're, you're steeped in this stuff. I'd love to hear from you why you think that this SCE procurement was so groundbreaking as part of uh, these mandates here in California. Well, it's groundbreaking because they showed all of these technologies were cost-effective in comparison to what else they would have to purchase for local capacity requirements. What I find really interesting about what's happened in California with CalISO is this 
DERP, this distributed energy yeah. um, resource provider. DERP is like internet slang for idiocy, so I don't know what they were thinking. Perhaps these are not web savvy folks <laughs> coming up with these terminologies. I'm not, I must yeah. not be on the internet yeah. very much. Yeah. But anyway, continue. Um, but this is getting to what I've been trying to get FERC to think about, which is flexible capacity. Like, how do you pull all the distribution side? as a resource, so whether it's storage or efficiency or demand response or rooftop solar, anything on the distributed side, how do you make it participate um, as really part of your resource mix? And this, this ruling or this docket is sort of getting to that, although, of course, the, the devil's in the details on how they're going to do it and who the aggregators mm-hmm. are going to be, if it's going to be utilities, if it's going to be others. But that's what we need to get to, is realizing that your resources aren't just on the generation side, but they're on the distribution yeah. side. And you can't pair technologies yet, right? It's like one single technology set. Well, where we are is we've looked at pairing storage and electric vehicle charging and actually bidding that into the California ISO market. Um, it's really a pilot. It sort of goes to this whole DERP idea. We're the aggregator. We're bidding it through our scheduling coordinator. And... Uh, we are looking at what those look like and what the model looks like. It's something that the California ISO is working with us on. Um, because of the, I think, the pressure to look at aggregation of resources, um, you know, as everybody said, if you put a, you know, we've got a number of megawatts worth of energy storage out there today. Um, the question becomes, what else can we do with it? Can we do dual use type of applications? We have those questions, and then you look at it and say, well, there's a regulatory barriers from doing so. The ISO wants you to, if you play in the ISO markets, you play in their markets. You don't really play in the distribution market as well as uh, the ISO markets. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, so it, it sounds to me, though, that, that what that enables, right, if you're basically going to sign a contract with someone like, let's say, like STEM or somebody, and then you, you then give them fixed payments for five years, but then you take that capacity, you aggregate it together, and you get reimbursed or make a profit off of then bidding that into the the markets, right, and then recouping that cost um, yourself, right, and then you're providing a market signal in the marketplace that allows for the faster adoption of that technology, right? I mean, isn't that, I mean, to me that's the, I mean, that, that that's the classic role the utility plays in general, is which is that sometimes it's not as cost-effective to do at the individual customer level on a one-off basis because of all the fixed charges to you know work within the California ISO, but if you can aggregate up thousands of customers and bid it all into one as one capacity, then you know you get a lot of economies of scale out of that. Yeah, and the ISO is looking. I mean, they've got a demand response program that they're looking at doing some of this with, and you know, and we continue to investigate how we can aggregate devices, distribution devices, play, play in the markets. Um, you know, we're in the midst of. As, as you probably know, we're in the midst of the same sort of procurement. We had all, our version of the all-source RFO as well, and we, you know, it's not complete at this point, but uh, we'll, we'll see how that rolls out as well. Um, well so. And to Catherine's point, I think that you know, where this is going to go, I don't think this is an intellectual argument, right? I mean, where this is going to go is if, if this works by 2017, 2018 in, in Southern California Edison, then all of these players in these all you know requirements RFOs are going to end up bidding, you know, eighty percent less than everyone else. And when they bid eighty percent less than everybody else, they will win. And it doesn't matter that it was intellectually better or better or this or that or, you know, the arguments all fall away because the public service commission is going to be like, crap, I want that thing that's cheaper. Yeah. 
right? Like, I mean, like, you know, don't, don't tell me that it's harder to integrate into your system, and don't tell me that it's actually, like, not able to talk to your existing software, and don't tell me all the other stuff. I want something that's 80% cheaper. Go figure the rest of it out. Yeah, and I think having that volume out there is going to really also help them figure out how do we charge and value whether you're, you know, you're actually a load when you're charging as a, as a storage facility, but that can also be a service. So how does that kind of yeah. all work out on the accounting side? I think that's going to enable them to figure all those things out is actually getting the stuff out there. Yeah. Do, do you think that we'll see California lead in storage policy? Like, well, are other states going to copy what California is doing? You know, you, you've talked about this. We talked about this on the show recently with Sky Stanfield of IREC. Uh, you had a really great panel with some folks at the Energy Storage Association yeah. conference trying to figure out like how states are implementing this stuff. Yeah, they're all doing it very differently. differently. Yeah. yeah, people don't look at California and say we want to do it just that way. They do it all different ways. Some of them try to build it into their integrated resource planning processes. Some of them, um, some of them are doing mandates. Some of them are having. Um, you know, certain percentage credits. They're, they're doing it all different ways. Everybody's kind of trying to find their way through. But I think what California is going to be able to do is really test it out so that it's not just demo by demo, death by pilot, but that you're actually putting it out at scale. So you can really start to say, okay, this stuff works. It's really not that hard if you can build it into your, into your planning and procurement processes. Yeah. California is such a big market, just like with automobile, you know, emission standards or whatever else. Yeah. That, you know, when they actually release a policy, everyone's got to perk up and listen and, and pay attention. And, you know, they have, through their storage policies, gotten billions of dollars invested in the United States around storage, which is fantastic, right? So um, the conferences are getting bigger and the pilots are getting more, you know, uh, are out there and all that stuff. Um, I mean, as somebody who's, you know, done a lot of work in the, the policy realm on solar, I would say that I don't think the policies around storage are intelligent in any way in California. And so I do think that they're going to learn from their mistakes, and over the next 12 months, they're going to have to change a lot what of it. What is an intelligent storage policy to you? Well, it should be outcomes-based, right? And so right now, all the SGIP rebate funding is actually CapEx-based, which is exactly the mistake they made in 2003 with solar, right? So it was like 50% up to 450 a watt. Remember those days? Every system came in at 9 bucks a watt, um, <laughs> magically. And you're seeing the same thing with storage, right? So the same thing's true. It's like... 70% or 60% up to X dollars, and guess what? Magically, everything's coming in at that price so they can maximize the SJP rebate. So they've got to change that policy, and they know how to change it because they've done it successfully in solar and other places, but they just haven't done it yet. And the same thing's true with the RFO. Like, when you look at these RFOs, you know, Tesla's coming in strong with a lot of the winning bids and all that stuff, which is great, but it really has to be outcomes-based. Like, if, you know, particularly with storage, like, I don't want to pay every storage facility the same amount of money no matter where it is. Like, I want to mandate the utilities, for instance, to tell me exactly which substations would benefit the most from these storage units, and I'd want to pay developers more money if they're actually at a substation that's going to offset, you know, future transmission distribution upgrades and not pay them that much if they're just in a place that doesn't need it, right? And so, um, so there is an intelligence layer that has to be layered on top of that so that we can make sure that all the outcomes that we want out of this storage is getting deployed or being reached. And I think the New York Rev is getting to that more. That's right. That's much more outcome-based. Indeed. I would say that the DRP that we have to file July 1st has a lot of those same kinds of concepts. So we have to wrap it up here, unfortunately. Um, Very fun discussion. Um, Certainly enlightening for me. Got some new details on what SDG&E is doing. Uh, Tom, I just want to wrap up with, with one more question, which is, we have a lot of utilities here. You know, we have uh, people who are talking to the vendors and understand these issues, modeling this stuff. 
But when I talk to people in utilities, like many of them say this, it's still very siloed. And I'm just curious what this all adds up to if the type of conversations that we're having filter their way up through utilities in a way that they would like us to believe, or is the work that you're doing still fairly siloed? Like, help, help us understand that. Well, I, we spend a lot of time and effort trying to break down the silos. Um, so if you were to look at our sort of smart grid deployment plan effort that we did, we did spend time actually going through and saying, here, what, what do we think the future looks like? How would we get there? Um, and, you know, in many respects, forcing various organizations for the first time to actually talk to one another, which is relatively, you know, surprise, surprise, unique in the utility world. Uh, but you still get some of that. And, and the question, I think, longer term is, to your point, how to move this all forward, there just does need to be a much more holistic view of where is the system going, how is it migrating, how can you incorporate these new technologies, how can you take advantage of these new technologies to you know, better operate the system, which is becoming increasingly more complicated, more complex. Mm-hmm. And you know, so absent that, what you're going to see is a continued siloed and you know, in many respects uh, foot dragging of you know, certain utilities. Mm-hmm. Catherine Hamilton, Tom Bialik, Jigger Shaw, uh, thanks very much for tuning in. We are the Energy Gang. And that's going to do it for the show. If you're curious about upcoming GTM events, you can head over to our website and click on the events tab at greentechmedia.com. Thanks to Renesola for sponsoring this show. For more details on the company's bundled equipment offerings, head over to renesola.com. US. And for years worth of content, two years worth of content, follow us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or go to greentechmedia.com slash podcast for all our back episodes. One final note, we're going to have a normal show later this week, but we will be off next week. I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is The Energy Gang. We'll catch you in a few days. <laughs>